Welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks with expert advice from Jim Lang, Pittsburgh-based CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert. Jim is also the author of Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. To find out more about his book, his practice, Lang Financial Group, and how to secure Jim as a speaker for your next event, visit his website at retiresecure.com. Now, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm your host, Nicole DiMartino, and of course, I'm here with Jim Lang, CPA and attorney and best-selling author of Retire Secure. Now I want to tell you about our esteemed guest we have here tonight, uh, Mr. Charlie Smith, who's live with us in the studio. And actually, let me remind you that tonight's show is live, and we love our live shows because we love hearing from you. Our lines are open right now as we speak. And if you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call. That studio line is 412-333-9385. Again, that's 412-333-9385. All right, back to Charlie. Let me introduce Charlie to you. Charlie is the Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Officer, and a founding partner of Fort Pitt Capital Group, located right here in Green Tree, outside of our city, where he oversees the investment policy and strategy. In this role, he manages client portfolios of individual securities and provides an economic overview for the firm. Charlie is a regular for providing information for the financial media. He's been in Money Magazine, Barron's, The Wall Street Journal. He's written and lectured on stock selection strategies, macroeconomics, value style management, securities analysis. He spent his entire career in the investment management business and has extensive experience in both securities analysis and portfolio management. Charlie, thank you for being here tonight. Well, thank you, Nicole. I appreciate the chance to join you. Well, I know that you just left your investment policy meeting, so I'm sure you're uh, just ready to explode with all this information for us. So I'm going to turn it over to Jim. Good evening, Jim. Hi there. Um, Thank you, Nicole. Uh Um, One of the things that I will mention is um, I've been a big Charlie Smith fan for years and years, and Charlie is pretty amazing answering questions. So there, there would be one argument to say you don't have to prepare a radio show at all for Charlie because <laughs> he will be so good with questions. So I would encourage people, um, ask questions. He cannot, because of regulatory reasons, answer questions on individual securities. But if there is more of a general question, I think that, that you could not get a, a better person to answer them. Um, I have a couple questions for, for Charlie that I'd like to, to start I have heard you in the past, Charlie, talk about the equity premium. And these days you have a lot of jittery investors, a lot of nervous people who say, hey, you know, is this really the right idea? You know, the last 10 years, I, I really didn't do so well in, in the stock market. Should I, should I just kind of stick it out or should I really start looking for alternatives for the majority? And let's assume for discussion's sake that we're talking about a long-term investor. Okay, let's define the equity premium first because it is sort of a highfalutin industry word that not a lot of people really understand what it is. Okay. The equity premium is the extra return you get when you take risk. Uh, Basically, the extra return you get when you take ownership risk. Um, And the way we measure it is what return would we expect to get from the average equity, the average stock, relative to what we're getting on a treasury bond. Uh, and we want to compare apples to apples here, so we use a long-term treasury bond with a uh, with a stock. And a stock has a, a fancy term for, for the longevity of the investment, the, the duration. A stock has a very high duration, the same way a long-term bond does. A typical treasury bond, you can get 10, 15, 20, 30-year maturities. The equity premium is the return that you get on the stock portfolio relative to what you would get on a treasury. And as you said, over the past decade or so, uh, long-term treasury bonds have actually outperformed stocks, so the equity premium has not been there. And as, as you just also said, investors are concerned about that. They're saying to themselves, look, why take the risk of putting my money into an equity portfolio if I'm not going to be compensated for taking that risk? And that's a question we get all the time from our investors. And the way we answer it is by saying the last decade was a very unusual period, and for a couple reasons. First of all, we started the decade with interest rates at very, very high historic levels. Um, we go back to the late late 90s. We had interest rates on long-term treasuries in the 8, 8.5% range. They've since fallen on a 30-year bond down under 4%. So the the environment in which stocks were competing, so to speak, was one in which we were starting at a very high rate of interest. So it had a very high hurdle for the average stock to overcome. 
Secondarily, um, we had a period where we started the decade of the uh, the aughts, 2000 through 2010, that followed a historically very powerful period for stock prices. If you remember, in the latter part of the 90s, we had the average stock, and as measured by the S&P 500, was producing returns in the mid-20% range for most of the decade of the 90s. So we were coming off a period where stocks had performed uh, at, at historically high levels, and we had very high interest rates. So we were sort of set, setting ourselves up for underperformance at the time. Now, it was hard to convince people of that, uh, in fact, people were clamoring to put their money in stocks in 1999 and 2000, as you can remember. But the point is that the equity premium has only been um, negative or disappeared for two periods in the history of the U.S. economy. One was just the last decade, and the other was the decade of the 30s. So each of those periods was a period where we had weak economic performance, interest rates falling, and at the beginning of that period, very high share prices. So you want to take today's environment and say, how does that compare with 1999 or 1929? And that'll tell you whether that you have decent odds for getting positive returns from stocks. And given what we see today with historically fairly low interest rates, um, a multiple on the S&P 500 of only about 14 times earnings, um, it's our belief that the equity premium the next 10 years is going to be decidedly positive. All right. Well, that, that actually is, is very good. And the other thing that I always love that that you that you like to say is when you're talking about equities that you're not really talking about a dartboard you're actually talking about real ownership of real companies oh that, exactly that, 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 that get up every day just like we all do and go to work and try to make some money Let, let's think of it this way um, you know our, the raison d'etre for our economy is for people to add value to their various enterprises uh, the the phrase I like to use is there's nobody on the Forbes 400 who made their nut by lending money to somebody. You get rich, you build value, you compound equity in our economy by taking risk. That's really the only way to build wealth. And so if you're going to build a diverse portfolio of well-run businesses purchased at a reasonable price and hold on to them over time, you will earn a premium return um, relative to the bond market. All right, and would you see a um, a role of a money manager to help keep you in the market? Um, or I, I have heard criticisms, well, um, why didn't you know that the market was going mm -hmm. down? Or And then I've heard you say, well, I'm a little bit better at predicting what's going to happen in the next you know, three years in the next three days or three months. Oh, most certainly. Um, to answer your first question, we really earn our keep um, more so than anything else by helping people stick to their plan. Um, you know, there were a whole lot of people that, as I like to put it, went off the reservation in the latter part of 08 and early 09 when it looked like, you know, things were flying apart at, at certain points along the way there. Um, and, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, it, we, to a certain extent, get paid to disagree with our customers. Um, if our clients are going to pay us a fee, they expect us to do something not only different than that, what they might do, but also better. So in a sense, um, if you're going to pay an advisor to run your stock portfolio, um, you should expect results and documented results, but you should also let them do their job. So in some ways, we get paid to protect investors from themselves. Well, uh, yeah, uh, they, I, I was reading Jonathan Clemens' book, and what he said that was pretty interesting is that when people get in trouble, it is not necessarily because they have a bad asset allocation investment strategy to start. It's because they vary it mm -hmm. at the wrong times, and they end up and that they would have been better off just kind of sticking to their discipline. Exactly. Um, in, in, uh, my old boss used to have a saying that uh, investing is like a bar of soap, that if you play with it too much, it's going to disappear. And I think there's a certain amount of truth from the idea that you build a portfolio that's appropriate for your risk tolerance, and then you let it work. And the idea, if, if, you, if you have the fortitude to be contrary, go ahead and exercise it. But most people don't. People are social animals. They want to do what their neighbors and their friends are doing. And when their friends and neighbors have gotten off the reservation, they want to follow because it feels more comfortable. Uh, as Warren Buffett has said millions of times, 
Investing is not about comfort. It's about doing what the numbers tell you to do. And as an investment advisor, I get paid more for my ability to follow the numbers and do what the numbers tell me to do uh, than anything else. Um, you know, the ability to keep your head when the crowd around you is either um, euphoric over a market condition or down in the dumps about a market condition. The ability to objectively look through that and and let the the valuations tell you what you should do is where value gets added. Well, it, it, it's interesting you say that because I sometimes have clients and they come in and and I'll I'll see um, and I've, I've of course learned this from you. I, I've seen them have too high a percentage of their portfolio in any one stock, no matter how wonderful they think it is. And um, you have always preached, no, you don't want to have, and maybe you can comment on what percentage for what stocks. But they'll say something like, well, my my dad left this to me. Mm -hmm. Or uh, the other thing is, I think by nature, people don't like to lose money. And if they buy something for $100 and they sell it for $75, that that means they can never recover on that particular investment where maybe you might say, well, hey, $75 is a good price for this stock right now. Let's just get out and let's get into something else. Well, there's a couple questions there. First of all, diversification. Um, Academic research has shown that once you get beyond about 17 to 20 stocks in your portfolio, you've removed the risk that any one stock is going to wreck your results over time. So academics will tell you, once you get 20 stocks in your portfolio, you're pretty much diversified. Now, um, there are lots of managers out there that will put 80, 100, 150 stocks in a portfolio, and we don't understand that. At that point, you're making all the effort of finding all these individual businesses you want to invest in, and your results are going to look like the market because you've got just too many names in there. So diversification, we believe that the average position size, anywhere between you know, 3 and 5% of your portfolio, 5% to the upside, 3% to the downside, is a reasonable portfolio. So you've got between 25 and 35 names in a portfolio for full diversification. All right. And and when you say diversification, um, I assume that you're not necessarily going to pick every stock that is in the same sector, whether it be large cap value or large cap growth or small cap value. And and then do you also diversify across industries? Oh, most certainly. That's that's the most important aspect of the diversification function is making sure that you've got a a mix of industries in there. Um, And and that's even more important than the size, like large cap versus small cap? Most certainly, yeah. We would actually be agnostic when it comes to market cap. Um, Market cap, I think, has been way overrated as an investment metric. We believe that market cap is something that Wall Street's able to measure, you know, tick by tick, second by second with their computer power, but it doesn't really tell you a whole lot. Market cap, diversification by market cap, um, is really not diversification. Um, Diversification by industry and by company, most certainly. But uh, market cap, you know, we will... We will move towards uh, a, a cheaper group. If, if small cap stocks are priced uh, more attractively than large cap, we may have more small cap. Um, but otherwise, market cap is really overrated as a measure uh, of diversification. It doesn't do anything for you as far as diversification is, is concerned. All right. So in other words, if you have two, two companies of the same industry, one happens to be a, 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 a billion-dollar company mm-hmm. and the other one's a $100 billion they're gonna perform this. They're going to behave the same. If they're in the same industry, the industry, uh, the factor uh, that comes from the industry they're in is going to be a much greater factor in the performance than anything else. All right. So then so then when you see some of these charts that have so much percent large cap, so much percent small cap, et cetera, mm-hmm. you're saying that might be more appropriate to say so much percent technology, so much percent financial, so much percent. Oh, yes. Um, Health care, et, et cetera. Yes, exactly. I think to a certain extent, uh, Wall Street focuses on market cap because it's so easy to measure. Okay, and 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 then what do you what do you do with all these companies that um, maybe I don't know if the the trend is towards conglomerates or or if it's actually going away from that, but many companies even thinking locally, Westinghouse, that that uh, you think of or at least used to think of as an engineering company, and then they acquired all these you know CBS and all these other things. Mm-hmm. We have to dig below the level of uh, you know the corporate name and and what they what business they say they're in. Now, the conglomerates were, were a very popular 
form of corporate structure back in the late 60s and early 70s and that was that came from the idea that you could have a portfolio of businesses within a one one company and when one business was down another one would be outperforming and it would level out your performance over time um that was sort of uh, has been been debunked as a as a you know GE was a great example of a conglomerate that really didn't add any value had didn't add value for years and years the point being that um deciding what industries and and understanding what industries the companies that you own are in and how those in- industries interact with one another will determine whether you're diversified or not so um you know there are i think eight or 10 different sectors within the S&P 500 and maybe 15 or 20 industries one layer lower but your your portfolio portfolio performance is going to be determined um by how diverse you are relative to industry and even more important in terms of performance, and this is something we tell our customers, um, almost we preach it really, the only way you're going to outperform the S&P 500, and if you hire a money manager, their job is to add value relative to the index. Um, you know, you can go out and buy an index fund, pay almost nothing. Uh, you know, Vanguard can sell you an index fund for 10 basis points. If you hire a money manager, you should expect them to outperform the index over time. And the only way a manager is going to do that is if their portfolio looks different from the index. If you have a portfolio that looks just like the S&P 500 and you charge a fee, your results are going to be the S&P 500 minus your fee. So a manager has to make a bet, so to speak. A manager has to have the fortitude and the courage of their convictions to go and build a portfolio of companies that he or she thinks is going to outperform. And where that comes out in our portfolios is the mix of industries tends to be either overweighted or underweighted. So, for example, in our portfolios today, telecom companies, you know, the Verizon's, AT&T's, Sprint's of the world, are about 3 3 to 4% of the S&P 500. Our portfolios are made up of about 12% telecom companies. So we have about a quadruple weighting relative to the S&P in telecom. That's a pretty sizable bet. We're perfectly comfortable making that bet because we know that over time, if we're going to add value, that's where it's going to come from. We have to be different to be better. Okay, but but you don't necessarily um, come to that conclusion just to be different. You're, oh, no. You're, you're, you're actually saying, well, this is what I really think is going to be the right thing. and oh, certainly. And it just happens to be different than, it than falls, the falls. That's the way it falls out, in a sense. We, will, we come through thousands of businesses every week, every month, the companies that we believe represent good value, well-run companies at reasonable prices, and then if they happen to fall out a certain way, that's the way they fall out. Now, we're not going to go to extremes. We're not going to put, as I said before, we're not going to put all the, an entire portfolio is not going to be made up of companies within one single industry. But we will consciously over or underweight. We'll underweight the industries where we think the valuations are not attractive or the the secular or long-term trends are not attractive. And we'll overweight the ones that are the opposite, where we think we see good value. We think we see a portfolio or a a set of businesses that are uh, either have the wind at their back in terms of uh, secular economic trends or are simply undervalued or underloved by the street so that we can build a portfolio that does look different from the S&P. And how do you decide... So, so that sounds like it's really more of a of an issue of what percentage of different types of companies in your equity portfolio. How do you also decide what is what is the appropriate percentage of equities and what is the appropriate percentage of fixed income? And of course, that would be, I guess, to some extent, on a base case by case basis. It is to a certain extent, but we have sort of a generic portfolio that we would recommend for. Um, investors in general. Uh, let me let me describe that. Um, we calculate every single week what the equity premium is, how much extra we would expect to earn by owning the average stock, and we compare the the prospective return from the average stock for the next two to three years relative to a treasury bond, and we come up with hopefully a positive number. Once we see that number, we say, okay, we are we depending on what that number comes out. Right now, it's about as high as it's been in the last 12 to 15 years. We're in the mid-fours. We're at a, an equity premium of about 48 to 4.9% on our calculations today. It's uh, at about a 15-year high. So that tells us that we want to be fairly well invested in the stock market. Um, now, we will customize for individuals that can't stomach the volatility that comes with a portfolio that's 100% stocks. 
But what we will tell people is we will give you our very best advice as to how much of your portfolio we think you should have in equities, uh, and then you can decide, given your willingness or ability to bear volatility, uh, how much you want to you sort of buy into that. Well, that sounds like a pretty positive outlook. I have, I've avoided the question up till now, but maybe I, maybe I can't put it off any longer. Um, and I, I suspect that everybody wants to ask you what's going to happen in the next three months, which I know is much tougher. Does this mean that with the highest equity index that you have seen in 15 years that you are bullish and you are thinking that this is a good time to be in the stock market? What it means is there the pieces, the chess pieces are aligned where if we get some catalysts, and I think the, the political catalysts will be key here in the next six months, if the catalysts work in the way that, that we think they could, um, we could have a pretty decent equity market, equity environment the next three to five years. We don't know how the short-term pieces are going to fall out, but the valuations, as I said a minute ago, the the P.E. multiple on the S&P 500 is about 14 times next year's earnings. Which is relatively low historically. It's historically, right? it's averaged in the 16 range. Now, that number is skewed upward by the, 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 the large multiples we had in the mid to late 90s. Um, but still, I think it's still valid because we've got inflation very low. So we've got reasonable valuation. Profitability, in terms of net uh, profit margins in the S&P, just as our best example, uh, are at all-time highs. And we don't see any reason why they have to decline materially. In fact, we think given the continued ability to substitute software and systems for people in corporate structures, profit margins actually have some room to continue to move up. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't do good things for the employment rate at all. But we're talking about business, the business environment in terms of profitability at this point, not employment. So profitability, we think, could remain at, at, at what it is historically high levels. Um, multiples are reasonable. And if we get a, a settling down in the political environment, we could see the willingness on the part of corporate managements to go out and spend some of this capital that they've basically been hoarding over the past year or so. And uh, we could see some improvement. Alrighty, Charlie, we're going to take a quick break. We're here with Charlie Smith, Chief Investment Officer of Fort Pitt Capital Group, and Jim Lang. We'll be right back with the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. We're here with Charlie Smith, Chief Investment Officer of Fort Pitt Capital Group, and Jim Lang. And I know everybody, actually, before we get to even what you want to talk about for a second, Jim, we are live, and I just want to give you that number again, 412-333-9385. Go ahead and give us a call. Jim, before we get back to Charlie, I know you wanted to mention something about the new law that was just passed last week. Yeah, we actually had a whole show on the new law, mm-hmm. and after we, and we thought it was going to happen, you know, within a day of having that show, and it didn't. But then it was finally passed last week by the Senate, um, it, and it's all really considered at this point a formality that um, the House is going to approve it, and, this, and the president is, is expected to sign it either later this month or early October. And it's really important for a lot of people who have retirement plans at work. So let's say that you are um, an employee of a company and you have money in your 401k plan. And let's take the extreme. Let's even assume you don't have an IRA or you don't have a significant IRA and you're interested in making a Roth IRA conversion. Under the old law, or really I guess still as of today, you're not allowed to make a Roth IRA conversion of your 401k plan. But the new law says if your company has a Roth 401k plan and offers that to you, and if you are an employer, I would really urge you to um, implement a Roth 401k option, assuming you have a 401k plan at work. But if you are an employee who who has access to a Roth 401k plan, under the new law, you're now allowed to make a Roth IRA conversion, and the money will be transferred from your 401k where the money's growing tax-free, to your Roth 401k. And by the way, it would be the same for the university folks or the hospital folks in the nonprofit world. 
from, from a 403B to a Roth 403B. And this is really a big opportunity for people who want to be in the Roth world in a big way, but right now are limited. Um, we're go- we are going to include that in our workshop coming up, mm-hmm. and that is that is big big news, and it's new. Um, and frankly, I wouldn't mind talking about that for the whole time. But we already had a show <laughs> on that, and we have Charlie Smith, and um, I'm I'm very anxious to ask Charlie about something that perhaps um, would interest both investors and people interested in the local economy. And uh, Charlie, with the the, the Marcellus shale, I have heard um, actually from executives from the gas company that says this is going to be like U.S. steel for Western Pennsylvania. This thing is just going to be huge. There's going to be so much money in it. There's employment is going to shoot through the roof. The stocks are going to do wonderfully. We are going to increase our national security. We're going to reduce our dependence on foreign oil. And this is just going to be a wonderful thing. And then, of course, you know, the other side, the environmentalists are, are terribly concerned. Are we, are we going to ruin our water table? Is, is the, are we going to, you know, drill right in the middle of Yellowstone? Um, but, but perhaps since there is such a huge track in Pennsylvania, and specifically western Pennsylvania, I was wondering if you could make, maybe make some comments in general about the economy and is this an opportunity and are you guys as money managers looking at investing in natural gas companies or even companies that provide services to natural gas companies, perhaps trucking companies or drilling companies, etc.? Jim, you've you've uh, captured a lot in the intro there. Um, <laughs> it is it is a gigantic opportunity. The geologists tell us that the Marcellus Formation could be the second or third largest gas field in the world. Uh, several trillion cubic feet of natural gas in the Marcellus layer, which I think is five to eight thousand feet down. Uh, there's been an improvement in technology just over the past decade or so with regard to horizontal drilling and fracking. And fracking is simply high-pressure pumping of fluids into the shale formation to release the gas. Those are the two uh, transformative technological advancements that have happened in the past decade or so that have allowed this field, this this formation, is, we've known about it for a long, long time, but these two technologies have combined to allow us to get access to the gas that we never had before. And it really does represent, as you mentioned, a potentially transforming technology in terms of our national security. But we lack the infrastructure to use natural gas as a transportation fuel that we would need to remove our dependence from foreign oil. And you asked about investing. We are exploring uh, right now uh, several companies which are um, really on the infrastructure to allow the use of natural gas as a transportation fuel. All right, so you're talking about, a, in effect, a special pump or a special gas station. Well, that's part of it. At retail, uh, at the first big uh, volume uses will be in fleets. Uh, you know, and we've seen uh, um, T. Boone Pickens has been marching around the country for the last couple of years telling us that we need to get going on building the infrastructure for natural gas-fueled over-the-road trucks and large fleets. I believe that we are going to see that. I think it's, and it, it's mostly due to the fact that the energy value of um, natural gas versus the energy value of oil at today's prices is so compelling. That is, the, the multiple of uh, the price of gas that oil is selling at is at historic highs. So the amount of energy you can get out of equivalent um, dollar amounts of these two ener- energy sources is at a huge disparity. Natural gas is ridiculously cheap. And uh, given oil at, at 75 or $80 a barrel and natural gas at $3.60 in MCF, the energy equivalent um, is just not there. Gas is ridiculously cheap relative to oil. So the, the economics are, are compelling. Uh, we're beginning to see some of the politics becoming compelling. The, uh, there will be, before the, um, uh, the, the election, we expect Congress to move forward with some incentives for using natural gas in over-the-road vehicles, uh, some much bigger incentives than exist today. So that we believe there's a big opportunity for investing in companies that will build the infrastructure that allow us to use natural gas as a transportation fuel in very, very large volumes. The environmental question is a real one, obviously. 
But the key sort of technical piece of information I think that people need to recognize is that the water, you know, the big concern is the water table. And, and are we going to be compromising the quality of our water by drilling for natural gas in the Marcellus Formation? And the answer to the question is, if the drillers are properly regulated, there is absolutely no technical um, barrier or technical problem in drilling through the water table, which is typically 100, 150 feet below the surface, to the Marcellus Formation, as I said, a mile down. And if you if you do the well properly, case it properly, and you monitor the production properly, there is no risk to the water table. The key is we're going to be able to tax it. And the state's debating right now a severance tax on natural gas, and I believe the tax will pass. It'll probably be in the five to six percent level, and then we'll be able, be able to build the regulatory infrastructure to monitor the drillers, and then we'll be on our way to building an industry that could parallel. Um, what we had in the steel industry in this com- country for the first half of the 20th century. It, it's very interesting. I, I almost, without even asking you, I kind of almost knew that you weren't going to say, hey, we're looking at all the natural gas companies and all the different um, companies that are actually going to sell the gas, but we are looking at companies that support the infrastructure. Of, well, that's of, where the of, leverage is. That's where we really don't have a, a group of mature businesses to take advantage of this, you know, this incredible disparity in, in energy value of gas versus oil. We, we really, and that's, therefore, we don't have those businesses, so there's an opportunity for growth. You know, there, there is this huge disparity in the cost of oil versus natural gas, and if we just take advantage of closing that disparity by using a whole lot more natural gas as a transportation fuel, there's an opportunity for huge growth in these companies that make the infrastructure. Do you think that this is something that's going to come one way or the other and it's just a matter of time? Or do you think that this is a flash in the pan and maybe we'll see some activity and then it'll kind of die again? And no, then, uh, no, I think it's, it's, a permanent, it's something permanent because the implications for national security uh, are so profound. If we can basically become self-sufficient in transportation fuel, and we're not importing millions of barrels of, of foreign crude oil every single day, uh, we then sort of become masters of our own fate again at that point. And that's, that's very, very important. I don't know how any national leader um, could argue against that. Well, I, I, without getting, and it's going to happen, I believe. W- without getting political, I really like the idea of, uh, if not completely, at least substantially reducing our dependence on foreign foreign oil and and particularly some of the players that we're buying from right now. Particularly relative to all the, the quote, green technologies out there, natural gas, uh, when you burn natural gas, it only produces half the carbon of coal. So not only is it ridiculously cheap because of these these wonderful new supplies we've found, but it's cleaner. So there are opportunities for burning natural gas in, uh, in electricity generation, and that's beginning to happen. We're seeing uh, many of the large electric utilities around the country are mothballing or retiring their coal-fired plants, particularly their older plants that generate a lot of um, noxious um, NO2 and, and sulfur dioxide and cadmium and all these heavy metals in their waste stream, shutting down those plants and turning the burners over to run on natural gas. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, since this is such a, a Pennsylvania, of course, it's a nat- national thing and actually international. Yes. But since there's so so much in Pennsylvania, do you tend to favor local companies that you might know more about, or is that just sure? Sure. When when we can sit down and talk to management or run into them on the golf course uh, on the weekend, uh, certainly we can get a better feel for not only what the business opportunity is, but the integrity of the people that are running the company. Um, no, we're always going to favor a business where we can, you know, have a chance to talk with management. Um, now, you know, the argument that you need to meet with management and meet with a CEO and CFO repeatedly to uh, to fully understand a business, we don't necessarily buy into. But given the chance to own a local company, uh, all else equal, we'll take a company that's in our backyard every time. All right. Um, I, I have another question. It's It's more of a global question. And... You know, I get I get this a lot from from my clients who are very concerned, and they they say, you know, I I kind of give some of the standard standard discussion about long term investments, and I don't um, necessarily talk about the equity premium, but I do take out the you know the Ibbotson chart showing the long term performance mm-hmm. of stocks versus bonds over time, and they say, oh no, but 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 now everything's completely 
completely different. Mm-hmm. We have these massive def- deficits. Everything's a completely new ball game. Whatever has happened over the last 70 years in this country, and for that matter, if you would, if you read Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Sigel, he'll argue that, that there has been this, um, I don't know if he uses the word equity premium, but he would say the same basic thought. Mm-hmm. And he his analysis goes back to 1800 for the United States, and then he, he compares it with all types of markets all over the world. And, you know, they, they, again, in the name of his book is Stocks for the Long Run. Yes. Is, is this true? We, is this really a brand new ball game, or is this just, or is, is every generation, like I'm, I'm just picturing, I obviously didn't uh, live through World War II, but I would imagine if I, if I had, I would have thought, oh, well, this is a completely different ball game. We've never had anything like this. You know, we might be taking over and be speaking German next year. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a new ball game, or is this a variation of the well, same let, game? Let's frame it in, in the terms of World War II, the analogy you just gave. Uh, if we would have lost the war, uh, it would have been, you know, obviously uh, a whole new ball game. And my point there being that we, there's, if we continue on the path, if we continued on the path that we were in in late 41 and early 42, basically before the Battle of Midway swung the war in our direction, if we continue on, continue on that path today in terms of allowing the deficits to continue to rise, unless we make a change... Yes, this is a permanent game changer. You know, a, a 1.3 to 1.5 trillion dollar deficit each of the next three to five years. Um, you know, by 2015, 2018, we're out of business. We literally cannot afford the trend that we've seen the past two years. We can't afford to continue it. But again, if we change our path, if we take action, if we you know win the battle of midway, so to speak, we can turn the process around. You know. I remember in 99, in early 2000, when we were talking about surpluses, and the people at the Congressional Budget Office would come out and say, you know, we've got these surpluses, and given what we're doing now, we can see surpluses as far as the eye can see. Well, that was 11 years ago. Think about how much the world has changed since then because of our behavior. Well, we have the power to make the future right again, and it's going to involve ratcheting these $1.3 trillion deficits Back into the eight hundred billion, five hundred billion, three hundred billion, a path, a political, a path made up of political choices, which we're going to make over the next three to five years, that'll get us back where we need to be, and the political choices are maybe not as stark as the ones when we made when we decided to retaliate against the Japanese in early nineteen forty-two, and really get into the war whole hog, but. Um, the outcome could be just as severe if we were to lose the uh, the budgetary war, so to speak. All right, but but I take it the fact that you still have, um, that you are still a big believer in the equity premium, and I believe that you I think have. we're going to win that battle. I guess is is oh, the okay. best yeah, way. Yeah, of, yeah. Uh, that, 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 that's 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 what I was phrasing. Come to. No, I you know I'm an optimistic person. I, I believe that the inherent common sense of the American citizen is going to win out here. And, I, you know, I th- we can see it in the stirrings of the activism that we're seeing right now in this country, people recognizing that the wall we face, if we continue this form of behavior, is going to be um, insurmountable. All right. Do you, would you see, um, not necessarily for your own political convictions, but just say for the good of the market, if, if you mm-hmm. were, um, do you see a big difference if... Um, the Republicans take take control of the Senate and or House, um, and do you have any other long term opinions about you know different a change in the administration, say in another two years? Well, or, or or is it more going to be not which administration, but what the administration does? It's going to be what the administration does. Um, Barack Obama is a politician; he wants to be reelected, and I believe he will follow the template that uh, Bill Clinton has provided him. Uh, If you remember what happened in uh, the 1994 election, uh, the early years of the first Clinton administration um, were repudiated by Newt Gingrich and the contract with America. And Clinton tacked to the right. And he he basically um, got on board with some of the Republican ideas about not only taxes, but also... Uh, welfare reform, and he was reelected resoundingly. Um, I think that's what Barack Obama wants. 
uh, any politician wants to have a legacy of two terms. Any president wants a two-term legacy. Um, and I believe he will, he's a practical person. I do not believe he's the, the absolute ideologue that he's being painted as here recently. Um, and so I think he's going to behave in a very practical way. He will tack to the right. Uh, we will see him adjusting not only his, his policy but his cabinet, uh, and we will see a different president. Um, if he doesn't, um, it, it's going to be a very, very difficult, politically very difficult and painful uh, final two years of his term. And, and what about the November elections coming up? Do you I, think that's going to make much difference either way? I think we will definitely see a Republican majority in the House. Um, the Senate's, obviously, with the uh, the events in, in uh, Delaware over the past 10 days or so, that has clouded things a little bit in the Senate. But it's my guess is that the House will be probably a Republican majority of at least 20, 20 names. Um, and at that point, Obama will recognize that he must tack to the to the center, uh, to the right in this case, and uh, he will he will begin to do some things with regard to policy, whether it be um, you know uh, extending the, the the Bush era tax cuts, whether it be pushing cap and trade issues out into the future, whether it be um, repealing some of the more onerous aspects of the health care plan, he will begin to recognize that it's going to be about producing economic growth and employment growth for the citizens that gets him reelected. He'll figure that out. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. We're here this evening with Charlie Smith, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager of Fort Pitt Capital Group. Um, Before Jim goes on, I want to mention to you, when Jim was talking about the new law that was passed, I'm going to, tomorrow... We have a press release that we had sent out all over the country. I'm going to post that on our Facebook page. And I would encourage you to go to Facebook and type in James Lang and become a fan of our page. There we post uh, cutting-edge information. We post the audio of the shows that we do here. A lot of great information. Um, you can you can write into us and we, we comment back. So head on over to Facebook and, and join our page. Um, and, and before before my next question for Charlie, I should say, in, in fairness, as as full disclosure, if you will, that um, I do work closely with Fort Pitt Capital Group, which is Charlie's company, and we do have a an arrangement where um, I provide advice such as Roth IRA conversions, estate planning, what I would call maybe uh, big picture, and I'm not talking about portfolio because I stay out of portfolios, I stay out of money management completely. But I should say that um, in, in terms of full disclosure. Um, Charlie, I, uh, you, 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 you mentioned several times what's going on in the world and that we just can't kind of look at this in our own little, um, in our own little uh, limited vision. Could you tell me a little bit about what your view is on international investing? And, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, international investing, that's, you know, rolling the dice on some crazy company in, in, in Africa, or whether that is just really a sound thing that, that most of us should have in our portfolios? Well, Jim, 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have answered this question this way. Um, but think, uh, I think it goes back to this discussion we just had about um, the U.S. Uh, eventually getting things right and changing the path that we've been on and getting on the right path. I think you can view overseas investing, investing away from the U.S., as a hedge against a bad outcome on that first question. Um, That is, if we don't get our political act together and our fiscal act together, you don't necessarily want to have all your assets here invested in the U.S. because we are not going to have, we're not going to be a happy place to be invested. So uh, I think it really behooves uh, anybody who wants to grow their money to think about where the growth is in the world today. And it's decidedly not in the U.S., although, as I said before, we have a chance to return to better levels of growth if we play our cards right. But you want to invest where 
things are happening today in the world. And, you know, the, the so-called emerging economies, which have now emerged, I mean, China's economy has just passed uh, Japan, I believe, is the second largest economy in the world. Um, Japan, uh, I'm sorry, China, Brazil, and India are pretty much the, uh, the poster children. Uh, Russia had been thrown in there, but they're, they're, they've got their own problems. But the point is that if you're an investor, the sort of critical structures necessary to make capitalism function have been put in place in many, many rapidly growing and emerging countries around the world where you need to be invested. Well, I actually remember Jeremy Sigel said, we want to see these companies do well so they will buy our stuff and well, buy sure. our services. Most certainly. And, and up to this point, the Chinese have sort of been um, you know, the worst example of mercantilism. That is, they've really built their economy on exports, and they've held their currency artificially cheap for years and years to try to continue to grow their exports. And they're finally recognizing that they put themselves in a bit of a box, and they need to let their consumers... Uh, who've been working their tails off for 15 years to try to build the wealth within the economy, they let the, need to let their consumers begin to re reap the rewards of all the work they put in. So we think the Chinese consumer is going to be the story of the next 10 years of worldwide investing. So you want to go sell some air conditioners in China? Well, that's a great <laughs> comment. That's a fantastic comment. We own a company called Ingersoll Rand, which is uh, one of the biggest manufacturers in the world of compressors. Um, in general, infrastructure to sell into these rapidly growing emerging markets, whether it be Boeing aircraft, uh, United Technologies um, uh, uh, escalators and elevators, um, high-capacity pumps, compressors, uh, GE locomotives. You know, there's, there's a sort of a myth going around this country that we don't make anything anymore. Well, Boeing is the biggest manufacturer of commercial aircraft in the world. And we do it better than anybody else. And they're actually the largest single component of our exports are Boeing aircraft. So if you can put together a portfolio of companies or as part of your portfolio, businesses that sell these high-value capital goods to these developing markets around the world, we think you can do pretty well. Now, do you think China understands this as well as you do? Or do you think that they're just going to continue to be obstinate and... Um and then, then the United States retaliates with its own tariffs, and it just gets worse and worse. Well, that's a great question because uh, I think it was this afternoon in uh, either the I think it was the House uh, bill was introduced to sanction uh, the Chinese for their obstinance on the currency. So it's it's going to be a terrific political hot potato over the next five or six weeks because it's easy you know always easy to to bash the foreigners uh, for the politicians. But I think the Chinese are getting the message. They said in June that they would allow their currency to begin to revalue upward. It's only moved about 1% since, but this is the first move they've made in that direction in several years. And I think they're getting the message that uh, their consumers are um, uh, getting a little bit impatient with not being able to reap the rewards of all the exporting that they've done over the past few years. We're starting to see wages rise in China, and that's a key driver of consumer spending. And when the currency begins to rise as well, um, the Chinese consumer, the Chinese household is going to reap wonderful benefits from all the efforts they've put in the last 10 or 15 years. And um, we need to be positioned in our portfolios to, to benefit from that. Uh, and, and I think investors in general need to understand that over time – financial market returns correlate with GDP growth. All else equal, an economy that's growing at 10% is going to produce better market returns than one that's growing at 3 The profit number you know, the, of the P.E. equation, the profit number is rising faster in a faster-growing economy. So therefore, all else equal, your share prices should rise at a faster rate. So you want to be invested overseas. It depends on your risk tolerance, but uh, anybody under the age of 50, from our perspective, at Fort Pitt Capital, anybody under the age of 50 needs to have 15 to 20 percent of their portfolio based outside the U.S. at a minimum. And and what about some of the some of the older listeners who might be in their 60s or 70s? Would you say we, we would say you need to be invested there? We need to you know okay. we're talking maybe 10 percent, even 15 percent. Think about it. The um, the U.S. market is no longer you know the king. It's still the largest equity market, but we're no longer more than half of the total. World equity markets, we're less than half now. Um, you want to be where the growth is. 
Um, you know, we historically, have, as U.S. investors, really didn't get involved overseas until the early to mid-80s. It wasn't until about 1984, 85 that you really began to hear about investing outside the U.S. It really took off in the latter part of the 90s. And now, um, to be an investor, you need to have a significant slug of your portfolio, you know, 25 30% overseas. All right. Um, you, you, you talked about corporate earnings and... Um, and apparently with your um, equity index um, um, uh, premium, mm-hmm. um, you, you, you sound somewhat bullish. How would that result in terms of what you would think would be possible um, corporate earnings, um, let's say even measured by the S&P? Okay. And what kind of result would that be in terms of stock prices um, and sure. let's say let's even say in the short run, although mm-hmm. I know that you prefer the long run. Well, six to view. twelve months is a fairly short run horizon, but that's that's really as as an analyst uh, to put together a, a reasonable estimate. Uh, you really can't look beyond six to twelve months. S and P earnings estimates um, for the year twenty ten are in the eighty dollar range. Eighty. This is S and P as an aggregate. So you you put a uh, uh, fourteen multiple. Uh, let's say, yeah, let's put a 15 multiple on that. That gets you to 1,200 on the S&P. And the S&P closed today, I believe, in the 1130, 1140 range. So, you know, the, the um, we're not too far below fair value on the S&P for 2010 estimates. The market's already looking at 2011. You know, stock prices are a forward-looking beast. They're going to be looking out six to nine months at a minimum. So let's say we get only 5 to 7% earnings growth for the S&P in total for next year. So we're looking at, say, $85, $86 in earnings for the S&P for next year. We put a 14, 15 multiple on that number, and we're looking at, you know, 1400 on the S&P 500. So, you know, that's a good 20, what, uh, 1400 versus 1150. I can't do the math quite quickly enough in my head, but we're talking north of 20% in terms of total return out over the next 15 to 16 months. So, um, and, and and usually when I when I do projections for people, it's always an interesting thing because I remember um, back in, in the early two thousands, I would want to use eight percent, and, and everybody screamed eight percent. That's so mm-hmm. conservative. Use twelve percent. Use fourteen percent. Well, now, that, now yeah. if I used eight percent, they're screaming, "What are you talking about? Eight percent? Use six percent? Use four percent? Use two percent? Use nothing?" Right, right. <laughs> um, well, the entire structure of interest rates has been ratcheted down over the past, actually, three decades, since the early 80s. Remember when we had uh, 17% Treasury bill rates in 1980 and 81, and we had 14% long bond rates? Well, now we've, we've knocked 10 percentage points off the long bond, and we've knocked now 17 points off the, the T-bill. The point is that the entire structure of financial market returns has been ratcheted down, and a 7% number annualized over the next three to five years in terms of appreciation, plus maybe another one and a half to two in, in dividend yield um, gets you to eight eight percent. So eight percent is not quite as no it's not it's, it's not, not a crazy number. It's not a crazy number at all. I think we're at the end of our hour. And um, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. Tell everybody if if you want to learn more about Fort Pitt Capital, your website FortPitCapital.com. <laughs> Easy one enough. Word. Yeah, we keep it pretty simple. All right, uh-huh. FortPitCapital.com. Thanks for uh, joining us this evening. You've been listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Portions of the audio that you just heard will be posted online at RetireSecure.com. You can also find a list of upcoming events and topics at RetireSecure.com. To seek Jim's advice personally or to speak to a member of his dedicated staff at Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, call 412-521-2732. Join us again in two weeks when we talk more smart money.